Hello, folks, and welcome back to Platform Enterprise, a podcast for people who are pissed off with capitalism. I'm your host, Rachel Donald. I'm an investigative journalist and a writer. You can find some of my work over at platformenterprise.com, where, most importantly, you can sign up to get these podcast episodes delivered straight to your inbox every week. On this week's show is Bruno from Croatia, and Bruno is a blockchain expert who's been working in the space of blockchain uh, for years and years and is now currently working on a platform and a network where people can create uh, and sell NFTs, non-fungible tokens. The first part of the interview is quite technical. He talks about the blockchain. I ask him to explain what an NFT is. And then Bruno goes into the, the theory behind it, um, what NFTs represent in terms of an alternative to the financial markets and the art market, and it, well, any market you can think of. Um, he discusses how uh, states and banks and corporations are currently investing in mock chains and other technologies in order to kind of subvert uh, the potentially fantastic community-owned uh, digital commons that will sort of liberate people from being forced to participate in the quote-unquote market. And then he talks about the kind of, literally gives names as to states that are attacking uh, decentralized projects and trying to undermine them um, because they're so fearful of what the community, the global community could do with this kind of technology. So I really urge you to listen to this one. It has left me with a lot to think about. It has left me with a clearer idea of where we might be in five years time, uh, technology wise and market wise. And it is certainly depicted, you know, the people working to save Web 3.0 and Web 2.0 is like Facebook and essentially the internet that we know today. People working to preemptively save Web 3.0 from privatization and from monopolization. Uh, they are the unsung heroes of our society right now, folks. Um, so I'm really thrilled to have one on the show today. I'm really thrilled to present him to you. And I hope you get a lot out of it. So yeah, here's Bruno. Enjoy the show. I tried to obviously get a grip of everything that you're doing. Um, and it's really cool that you were recommended by a listener, actually, of the podcast. I think that's the first time that's happened. So that's wicked. No. Um, but it does mean that I haven't tracked you down. So I am going to need some background in everything that you do and why you do it, essentially. And then we'll go from there. Sure, sure. Um, yeah, I'm Bruno. I'm a blockchain veteran. And I've been in the industry for six, seven years now. I used to be a web developer and I data mined my happiness around 2014, realized that JavaScript was making me miserable. Um, and then I just dropped all the JavaScript contracts. And when I encountered um, Ethereum for the first time, I figured like, okay, this is it. I'll, I'll dive into this. And um, one year later, one year of, of just learning uh, later, I started a few projects, startups, um, even an education company to help my Web2 colleagues move over to Web3 so that I can, you know, make, make it seem less uh, scary or impractical. And uh, that worked out fine. And then a couple, a couple dozen projects and, and startups later, I, uh, I was hired by a company called Status. They do an Ethereum-based messenger, and one of their offshoots in their 
R&D branch was Nimbus, which is uh, which is a client for Ethereum 2.0, so like the next version of Ethereum. So I was hired to work on that as a technical writer. Um, and then after that, I was picked up by the Web3 Foundation in, in Zug to be essentially the same thing for the Polkadot and Kusama blockchains. Um, I was I, I was to become their technical education person, and technical education is a fancy way of saying you copy paste knowledge from from one person's head to another person's head. <laughs> um, only you kind of you're a filter in between where you adapt the the content to the target audience. And that's that's basically it. Um, and then I started this. Um, so I I I, uh, I saw that uh, NFT madness was was ramping up again at the at the end of last year, like somewhere in August. And uh, by then I, I had been a very active community member of the Kusama blockchain. And the Kusama blockchain is like this um, canary network for the Polkadot chain, where everything Sorry, happens. Yeah. What's a canary network? A canary network is like. It's not a it's not a test net. It's a value bearing experimentation network. So it's a network where features come first and where things move faster. And some of the features that mature there and turn out to be really stable and useful will then go on to the um, like master network, which in this case is Polkadot. Um, so it started like this value bearing experimentation network, and it has to be value bearing. It can't be just a test net with worthless tokens because then attackers have no incentive to attack it. Oh, okay. And so um, it started out like this, but then it kind of evolved in its own direction and became a sovereign chain um, that shares most of the code base with Polkadot, but has, but is more, um, is more, I'd say, artsy and decentralized in spirit. And it has this kind of cypherpunk vibe that if you were around in the early phase of the internet with Usenet groups and whatnot, it kind of it's it's a little bit reminiscent of that. So I I was a big fan of that network at the time in August last year, and I noticed that the NFT craze was ramping up, and this was a kind of like an artsy chain. So I figured let's see if there's demand for NFTs on that chain. Um, but this chain didn't have any ability to um, be customizable or programmable. So no smart contracts, nothing that you would expect on other chains. And this is for one simple reason is that uh, Kusama is a blockchain that's meant to connect other blockchains. So mm. it's perf purposefully made light, lightweight, without all of this baggage. Um, but at the time, there were no other blockchains connected to it. And so you had no way to actually build on connected chains for, for Kusama. So what I did was I took the approach from Bitcoin back in the day where they used a clever method of graffitiing the chain to basically put some custom messages onto the blockchain. So you, you can imagine it like, um, like I always use this example, like you walk through town and you see a, a, the, a graffiti of a red turtle on the mm -hmm. side of a, of a building. And if you're a, like a civilian, then you would think that's a cute turtle and move along. But if you were a member of a gang called Blue Turtles, you would turn away and and go home. Mm -hmm. And this is because as a member of, as a gang member of that neighborhood, you have a hidden 
language with other gangs in the in the hood that basically lets you know what's going to happen if you venture into another gang's area and all of the gangs share this language and this is how they divide territory and so what we do with the kusama blockchain is exactly the same we graffiti the chain we graffiti the blocks with custom messages and I wrote a set of specifications or rules for how to interpret these messages, so this coded language. And so by following these instructions, you can actually see NFTs where there are no NFTs. So in, in, in essence, I, I created the kind of emulation or illusion of NFTs on a chain that, that didn't want them wow. um, through this hack. Um, this has some downsides, but it's a fun experiment. And it's exactly what Kusama was made for. So edgy experiments that really push the envelope and, you know, see what's possible. And uh, yeah, fast forward a year later, we have one of the most popular NFT protocols and marketplaces um, in the world running now, um, which is home at the same time to the most advanced NFT protocol out there. Because our NFTs go way, way beyond just simple expensive JPEGs. Um, they don't emphasize, you know, collecting images that then got, gather digital dust for years. Uh, but instead, these NFTs are designed to evolve, to um, be forward compatible with projects that they're not even aware of yet. So if somebody down the line makes a completely unrelated project, your old NFT can become compatible with it. Um, these NFTs can, can have multiple resources at the same time. So you can have an ebook that's an NFT that has an audio file inside of it and a PDF file inside of it and a, and a, like an image inside of it at the same time. And then if you load it into Audible, it'll just play it. If mm. you lo load it into Kindle, you can just read it, read it. And if you load it into a marketplace that doesn't support that stuff like OpenSea, then you'll see the image, like the cover file. Uh, but if you okay. trade it, everything goes with it. So that's basically it. Let's, let's, let's break down NFTs uh, yeah. for anyone who might not know, well, probably has heard the acronym, but doesn't understand them. Sure. Uh, me being one of them. I mean, I have Googled this. I have spent hours. <laughs> what is an NFT? And like, even how you're speaking about them now, you, you're speaking about them as if they're beings, you know, like they can evolve. Uh, you can then take them here and they'll learn how to work over here. Like, what is a non-fungible token? Yeah. Um, okay. So maybe I dove in a little bit too advanced at the start. <laughs> maybe we should have started, started a bit lighter. Um, so let's start at the basics. An NFT is any... any um, bit of information stored in a global decentralized database that also can belong to someone. That's it. So it's any any digital information that you can own. Is uh, So is that, hmm, how is it different from a, a piece of cryptocurrency then? Uh, because a piece of cryptocurrency is fungible. That's the, that's the NF versus F uh, thing. Okay. So fungible means that if you have one Bitcoin, that Bitcoin will, in theory, be identical to another Bitcoin. Um, in practice, this is not so, and fungibility is actually a spectrum. But um, in theory, a Bitcoin is always a Bitcoin, an Ether is always an Ether, but a picture of my cat is not identical to a picture of your cat. Right. And so these these tokens are not fungible, they're not interchangeable, and this is why they are, each of them is, in theory, unique and has value in that uniqueness. Okay, and why would somebody choose to transfer, sell, uh, give an NFT in its form over just 
sending the audiobook and the Kindle version and the PDF? Right. So this is all about removing intermediaries. Um, with platforms that are out there right now, you have this huge rent-seeking problem where um, you know you have to leave upwards of 30% of your profits with an app store if you want to publish an app. Mm. Um, you have to, I don't know how much Audible charges, but I bet it's not trivial for, <laughs> for e-books and audiobooks. So uh, at its core, NFTs are about empowering the source of the material. So if you're the artist or the author of the book or you know somebody who is the source of that material, you now have the opportunity to actually earn for uh, your work Look, like get 100% of the funds um, to yourself. And we have a ton of artists on our platform and on other platforms as well who are now making a living selling NFTs because they can finally earn what they're worth um, in terms of their talent and they're no longer, you know, like geofenced into their environment where um, they can only sell to locals or tourists and only if they're lucky. So now you have global reach with your digital output and in some cases physical output as well because some people will bind a, a physical product to an NFT so that if you buy for example uh, an mp3 of a, of a song that artist will ship you the, the vinyl record um, mm. separately and so now you get you, you basically you can imagine NFTs as uh, the technical ability to access a global Craigslist so with, with NFTs, you can now sell anything to anyone anywhere in the world without a single global superpower, military superpower, hacker, or anyone else being able to tell you no. And that's the empowering part. So there's no regulator, there's no taxman, there's no anybody who can take things away from you. It's just you and your customers, you and your audience. And you can reach them anywhere in the world. So who funds your part of the project then? Because you have to maintain this network and this platform, right? Yeah. So where do you get the money to do that? Uh, we, we had a fundraise um, in uh, April and May where we were selling a limited collection of NFTs. So we were also funded through NFTs. We published mm -hmm. some NFTs, people bought them. Um, we continued to build on top of these NFTs and give people like periodic perks and and expand their involvement in our universe but we we use this as seed capital and for running costs and, and onward we take a commission from the trading fees on the marketplace though it's all open it's an open protocol and uh, this commission is not enshrined in the protocol itself which means that somebody who, who's technically minded can build an alter alternative marketplace that uses our protocol so you can sell these NFTs through your own thing or your own app or your own website or whatever and avoid the commission altogether. So the commission is slapped onto the user interface that people are using to trade these NFTs and the, the user interface is run by us. We, we built it. But it, as it's an open source protocol and people can build on top of it, uh, many different variations can exist and do exist and you can actually completely bypass any, any, such, any such fees. And in effect, this is, this is good. Uh, because it prevents stagnation in the mm. ecosystem. Because if we like, if we're outdone by a UI that um, you know also has commission, and then we start losing commission because of it, or if we're outdone by a UI that just does UX way better than us, um, then 
we are directly incentivized to build such a good experience for people that they will prefer paying the commission through us rather than use the free alternative. And so everybody wins in any case. And is the commission on every transaction? It is, yeah. We, and how we, much is it? We take 2%. Okay. Yeah, that's a lot less than Amazon or other marketplaces. So is it, is it, am I right to think of it as sort of a, a digital commons? Like you invite people to um, help provide the initial capital to set it up and to maintain it. And it's not an external fundraiser. It's not an external capitalist. It's the people that actually have a, an interest in using this and building their own Absolutely. markets. Absolutely. Yeah, it. this is this is very much a community-owned um, initiative where everybody who kind of got in through these NFTs is actually a, kind of a partial owner of that mm. project. So the community is our VC. Um, mm. And in, in many ways, they can, like, they can exit right away um, by selling their NFTs now. So we started out by selling digital pictures of eggs that people could send reactions and emotes to. And then these emotes would influence what kind of bird would hatch from these eggs. Oh, right. I think I've read about that. That was you guys. That was oh, us. Oh, okay, yeah. cool. And so then if you like, if you send like 10,000 tennis rackets to your bird, there's a good chance that it's going to be born with a tennis racket in its hand or something. And so now people hatched their birds, they got the birds, and they got these items that the birds are holding. And many of them have already exited from their investment by either selling the bird or selling the, its items or selling both. And they got their investment back and then some, and they're, they're out. But this means that somebody else is now in. And so uh, with the community engagement around this and with building the entire ecosystem and the metaverse around all of this, uh, what we're doing is we're asking for the community's help to build this and they are asking for, for us to keep building on this. So we're all in this together. And it's a huge growing ecosystem that will only get bigger as we expand with partnerships and with you know games around it and whatever. Can you see how many users you have on the platform? And I don't know if users is the correct term. Uh, not accurately. Uh, mm -hmm. Since there's no way to um, identify, you know, like identities, uh, like I, I don't know if a thousand addresses, a thousand crypto addresses belong to one person or multiple people because I don't see their IP. I don't see any, any metadata about them. I can't tell. Uh, we know that we are in at least a few thousand unique users, which um, given given zero marketing that we've done um, is not bad, but we definitely want to increase yeah. by a few orders of magnitude. So uh, working on that. What's right, fun okay. is that we now, just launched, uh, we, we just launched like three days ago, um, the ability to, to trade the birds and to sell those items and everything. And in those three days, we had over $300,000 in volume on the marketplace, just on the birds, not counting the other NFTs. So it's not bad. Wow. wow. Okay, can I ask a, a perhaps stupid question? Why, why are people spending money on NFT birds? Is that to, because it um, helps grow the, the ecosystem? Uh, among other things, there are different, different uh, goals that each collector has. Some of them, a lot of them, are um, very much into collecting NFTs from the very first collection of a certain type in a certain environment. And Canaria, these birds of ours, definitely are that. 
So they are the, the very first NFT project on the Kusama chain, and they are the very first NFTs in the world that can do this functionality that we've built. So this, this item mechanics and, and stuff like that. Uh, others just want to flip them and sell them for a higher price. Uh, others, again, are hoping for future airdrops, like new equipment being dropped on them and then earning money on that, or earning tokens through them, or even using these birds in one of the metaverses that we're going to build, like the games and stuff, so as avatars and so on. So there are a lot of, a lot of goals that people have. All right. And... Um... It sounds like an extremely exciting uh, project and the potential uh, is huge, you know, bypassing intermediaries, um, having a community owned marketplace. But how are there any protocols in place um, to inhibit a certain pool towards creating just a, a mirror image of, for example, the, the art market that already exists that, you know, does tend to squeeze out? Um, artists and does tend to value art only for its, you know, capital value. Um, I'm not sure I understand the question. Can you rephrase that? Uh, maybe. Um, are there any protocols in place um, or are there any discussions in your team even perhaps about how to ensure that this project continues on the path of being community-owned and community development and an alternative kind of market versus uh, falling into the trap of mirroring the, the art market and how that currently functions. Got it. Um, <laughs> we don't have to worry about that directly because by virtue of being an open platform and an open protocol, it is not possible for us to hijack the market that way. Uh, the, this is like we are one of many NFT protocols out there. Um, and for for the use case that, that you describe, like particularly just art, we are probably not the best. So we are the best for really advanced NFTs. And art is definitely not an advanced functionality NFT. It's just a reference to an image, which um, is is doable on many different blockchains all of them, most of them open. And so if one of them turns evil somehow, which technically isn't also isn't possible because uh, it's an open protocol and everybody can just develop an alternative UI on any of them at any time. So you can just, you know, like if, let's say that for example, tomorrow we decide to take 70% of every trade. Uh, what's gonna happen is two days after that, somebody's gonna have a new UI up that does the same thing we did so far, but has less of a commission. Uh, and this is possible because the protocol is open source, because there's documentation out there on how to build these alternatives and any mediocre to, to competent developer will be able to whip something up in a, in a few weeks. And so uh, it is technically impossible for us to hijack a decentralized protocol. All right, okay. And so what uh, NFTs are typically traded then if, if art is, is quite a simple one? Uh, art is the most traded one in general in all of NFT space mm -hmm. and particularly on Ethereum where the vast majority of NFT traffic happens. Um, they're the, like the, the most traded NFTs right now are actually profile pictures. So this is where you'll what? see 
yeah, this is where you'll see a picture of an, uh, a cartoon ape fetch the price of around $200,000. What? That people will put on their Twitter profile. Are you not aware of this? No, I mean, I, I knew that, that the, the Jack whatever his face sold his first tweet on, as an NFT, but like, uh, why? No, no, no. What is the logic? What? Yeah, so the, the logic is there's... <laughs> That, that's not that's not that's not the craziest part. The craziest part is that there are pictures of rocks, clip art pictures of rocks that are going for six hundred thousand dollars now, that that all look the same. It's a it's very much a bubble that's overdue for a deflation um, at this point with these profile pictures. Um, the... yeah, but, uh, hang on, I have to I have to stay on this. It's absolutely insane. Uh, why, why why like why would somebody not just I don't know get a clip art make a clip art of a rock if that's what they wanted or go to google images and download a picture of an ape like um it is it is the same it's belonging to a club it's the same as uh why would you buy a fifty thousand dollar rolex when a twelve dollar casio will do the same job uh just as well um people buy these things as extensions of their ego and mm -hmm. as a signaling mechanism and also as a permission slip to access a specific club of very exclusive uh, memberships. Like there are only 10,000 of these ape drawings out there. And so you can only access this club with 10,000 other people in the entire world. And it is not possible to make more. Um, it is the same with CryptoPunks, which are by far probably the most famous NFT at this point. Um, and they fetch like upwards of a million dollars for, for a picture of a pixelated uh, character. Um, it is the, sa the same thing because you belong to an exclusive club of 20,000 people. And this is very much a, a real club where, where you have Discord servers and whatnot, where people actually will discuss um, you know, crypto finance and stuff. It's a crazy, crazy world. Who are these people? Are they like crypto millionaires or like Silicon Valley engineers? Um, yeah, both. Um, it's it's mainly like at this point when there's this this crazy money going around, it's mainly uh, people from the early days of Ethereum with funny mm. money that uh, they have left over from their gains. Um, it's not gonna last forever. It's very exclusive, but yeah, that's that's basically the early adopters playing. Oh my god, because then, I'm, I'm sorry, but then it does, it sounds like NFTs are exactly a mirror of all of the markets that exist then, because isn't that what, you know, marketing or, or consumerism is about? It's about having, you know, the best thing so you can show that you're, I don't know, for the people that would buy the, the Rolex over the the everything else <laughs> yep, yep yep exactly exactly so these these elite clubs of nfts they are they are this this very elitist thing where people are competing for prestige by having the most expensive one this is exactly a mirror mirror image of that uh, that thing and this is why we were disillusioned with this type of nfts and developed our own protocol with that goes beyond these these digital collectibles oh okay so people aren't selling these on your platform no, no, on our platform, um, we don't, I mean, people are selling images on our platform that, yeah. that they made. So there are paintings, digital paintings and, and whatnot. Um, I'm not saying that it's not going to happen that somebody's going to develop a very popular project that, that goes to these levels of pricing. But we are mainly focused on providing the technology that goes a lot mm -hmm. further than these, than just plain images that are, that are overpriced, yeah.
<laughs> Overpriced. <laughs> that is... <laughs> What a, I mean, it's true, but it's also, I mean, such an understatement. <laughs> Hyperinflated. I mean, the fact that the, a pixelated rock even has a value worth anything. Oh, mental. Right, okay, wow, I did not uh, expect that. So tell me then, let's, <laughs> let's get away from the elitist, um, funny money people, and into the nitty-gritty of your platform again. What are you um, hoping that people will be able to trade then? Um, on your, on your it's, platform. it's not so much about the trade. Trade is just one function of it. And, mm -hmm. and sh I, we enable trading just like we enable everything else. It's just a basic feature that people expect because they need to be able to swap this safely. Like you don't mm -hmm. want people trading OTC, meaning over the counter, where they are away from the platform because that's error prone, risk prone. Um, you know, if if the app, if the protocol takes care of the trading for them, then it's, and it's very safe and we, we keep people safe that way. Um, but the other stuff that we want to do is uh, we want to fuel the technological layer on which other experiences are built. And these, we want these to be really creative things that people have not even a, a, attempted on other protocols because they couldn't. For example, our NFTs can own other NFTs. On other platforms, you can't do that. And so what happens with this is that you can imagine this as something, let's say, relatively simple, like an in-game character owning a backpack, and then that backpack owns a bunch of health potions or sandwiches. And so that's, that's cool, right? So that's a game. Yeah. Everybody's familiar with that mechanic. But then you can take that further because our NFTs can also be audio files. And so if you mint an empty music sheet as an NFT, and then you send, you have the community send uh, mint notes as NFTs and then send those NFTs into the music sheet so that the music sheet owns the notes. The community can decide where each note is placed. And what you end up with is a playable NFT, a, co a collaborative composition that can in turn distribute royalties from its sales to all people who participated in its creation. Holy, wow. And so, yeah, when you, when you, like, we built, a, uh, like, these, a few elementary, we call them NFT Legos, that are extremely simple at its core. Like, NFTs owning NFTs, that's it. That's one Lego. And it's self, self, like, encompassing. It's, it's standalone. But we have other NFT Legos, four more, and each is that simple. But if you put them together, you can create a system of arbitrary complexity where you actually can create really creative uh, massive projects that, that nobody has ever thought of, like this musical example, right? right? So you have an NFT that's, that's a musical piece alongside something visual, that's a multi-resource NFT, that's one Lego, and then you have the other Lego of NFTs owning NFTs. And you put these two together and suddenly you have a collaborative composition. My mind is totally blown. Wow. Although I'm so technologically illiterate, I'm imagining it like... Um sitting down with a couple of mates and playing around on GarageBand together, but then that GarageBand piece being an infinitely complex code thing that can make royalties and send it. <laughs> Just, I'm, okay, can you give me another example, actually? Yeah, sure. Uh, we actually we are actually talking to some DJs and, and relatively popular artists that want to use our platform as a sort of decentralized band camp. And so by doing this, you can engage with your audience directly without those fees, but you can also utilize the multi-resource aspect of our NFTs in that 
your uh, one NFT can contain the actual track, reference the dub plate that you get physically shipped to you, uh -huh. and also uh, maybe a vinyl record and it can also in the future serve as your digital pass to a concert so if you have that nft on your mobile wallet you just show it at the entrance and it's unfalsifiable you will be able to cryptographically verify that you are truly the owner of this and this will just get you a vip backstage pass then wow okay yeah so that's that's one example in terms of the in terms of the music like another example is um, there, there's this one that I've been that I've been bringing up also. Um, like if you have a metaverse, like a digital universe, like a game, and it's divided into subplots of land, like virtual real estate, right? Each plot can be an NFT. And let's say that I buy some land as NFTs, and then I go to our marketplace and I buy a billboard object as an NFT, and I can then send that billboard to my land. Now my land owns that billboard. Yeah. And so I'm going to tell my land, hey land, show this billboard. And so the billboard appears in the, in the metaverse. And so let's say that then a lot of people who are entering this game appear next to this billboard and some corporations take notice and they say like, hey, that's, this is getting a lot of foot traffic. We have to put our ad up there. But I don't want to deal with them. Instead, what I do is I split this billboard into fungible tokens, and that's another piece of Legos. And so I divide these fungible tokens out into the community. And so now the community can democratically decide what happens to this billboard. They govern it collectively, not I. And what happens is that these corporations who want their ads there, now it's up to them to bribe the community to pick their ad instead of their competitions. And what you end up with is a huge system of community-owned and governed virtual real estate management that is completely decentralized and lets people interact in a parallel universe um, like, like a metaverse. Um, if anyone could see my face right now <laughs> um okay there's a lot to unpack there uh first of all uh, they're gonna start marketing to us in games and things really oh really? yes oh yes this is already going on if you if you look at any online game you'll see actual billboards only those are sold by the publisher of the game yeah. for money that does not get into the community yeah. But this way, you can actually own, like, think of it as, a, as an even simpler example. In five years, we're all going to have augmented reality lenses in our eyes. Uh, people who do not will be left behind as boomers and ignored by the society. And so, <laughs> Hang on, wait, wait, wait. Is this actually going to happen, or is this like a hypothetical thing? No, this is definitely going to happen. Oh, um, bloody hell. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and so you're walking around, you're, you have your augmented eyes, it's, uh, life is good. And then you're walking around, and there's a bunch of billboards alongside the road that, that really annoy you. And what your augmented eyes allow you to do is override those with white space so that you no longer see that ad for, I don't know, whatever, this shoe, that shoe, that soda, or whatever else. Um, but with NFTs, what you can do is you can tokenize the white space around you and you can rent it out to companies that actually want to pay you to see their ads. So like you would have the Brave browser today, which pays you to occasionally close a pop-up, uh, you can now replace advertisements in your real life with advertisements that you care about and get paid for or just white space to ignore them. Oh, this is so bad. I mean, uh, listen, no, 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 no. I'm so <laughs> uncomfortable right now. My heart is racing. That sounds like a dystopic nightmare. Hold up. Okay. And I know this isn't about, you know, your, your platform right now, but hold up. 
uh, no, absolutely not. I like because the thing is, I mean, imagine how that would work in um, the market that currently exists. Like you would have to pay a premium in order to have that right, you know, to like you would have to have the, the highest subscription in order to have the right to have white space, you know. So then it's just going to like create even more uh, class divisions and differences in education and all like it's uh, that's not help uh, that's not helpful to to people you know that's ah but this is why we're in blockchain where uh -huh. no corporation has dominion over this technology and where it's decentralized and so if it's decentralized there's nobody to make that decision for you and you are in control of your media, your, your, your data, um, and what you're exposed to. And this is why we're in blockchain. So to remove these intermediaries who would charge you the highest subscription. Okay, I'm interested. You've, you've, yeah, you're pulling me back. However, <laughs> like who's, who's making those lenses, you know? Yeah, that's, that's going to be a tricky one. Um, so uh, it's probably going to be like it is with VR for the foreseeable future. So Facebook is leading the charge on that technical innovation because they have the okay. most money and um, they have absolute dominion over what you see, yes. Um, so ideally, there's going to be some young upstart, some revolutionary, some digital, digital revolutionary that uh, will develop an open standard that everybody can use to build um, their own version of the AR lens. Something like an Elon Musk with the Teslas who open sourced all the patents so somebody is going to have to show up who does do this technology well and then open sources and opens the patents for everybody else to use, yes. Yeah, and then they'll get a bullet in their head. Sorry. <laughs> well, well, Elon is still alive, so I, I have some hope. Um, right, okay. Whoa. So th but this is interesting. This is interesting because uh, for somebody who's um, technologically illiterate like myself, and would rather believe that that won't happen um, in my lifetime. It's interesting that for someone like you that's, that's in this um, field and that can see 5, 10, 15 years in the future and know, you know fine well what is very, very likely to happen. It's interesting that, um, and this is what I love about like cyber people, like you're all working to kind of uh, offset the potential of monopoly and of privatization and all of that stuff. Like everything that you're building on is also uh, building a defense against, you know, when Google or Apple or Facebook catch up um, or try to implement something horrific. Except, and sorry, I'm tangenting here, except, you know, uh, it didn't work with Web 2.0. Yeah. You know, they really took over. They really did, and this is why we're fighting the Web3 fight. Um, and this is, this is also why it's a really difficult fight to, to have, because um, it is super hard to tell people of our generation that their digital rights may be taken away before their digital rights are taken away, and with that, your ability to tell them that their digital rights might be taken away. So this is a really nasty catch-22 where people of, of my generation do not understand the threat of a loss of digital freedom because they've never lost it. Yeah. And when they lose it, you can no longer reach them. Like just one generation ago, my parents had only one exposure to world information and that was through the state. So here in Croatia or Yugoslavia, uh, what it was back then, you had state-sanctioned newspapers, state-sanctioned TV, state-sanctioned radio. Occasionally, some 
quasi-musician would travel to the Americas and the New World <laughs> and return with some wicked tunes, uh, rewrite the lyrics to creation and climb to the top of the local music ladder um, until 20 years later everybody realized, hey, this is just a copy-paste of you know, <laughs> um, and so this this is this was the only touch of West that we had back then. Right. Um, just so so building a way. What so what is what is blockchain and all this? A, a blockchain, uh, a decentralized blockchain. That's the uh, important distinction to make. A decentralized blockchain allows you to send a message to anybody anywhere in the world at any time and have a guarantee that they will receive it. That's, mm. that's all it does. Now, if that message contains a picture of a cat or money or just hello or some content that the great Chinese firewall doesn't want you to see, doesn't matter. But it's a message and that message will arrive at its destination and is cryptographically verifiable. This is what gives the system its power. But then if you devolve this into blockchains that are centralized and running on a few servers, um, or if you just fail to convince people that this is not something to, you know, consider a scam and write off, um, then what, what happens is you get an, a constantly, a consistently dumber and dumber populace that relies on centralized news that yeah. starts to equate Facebook to internet, where they no longer can tell the difference, and they just cannot live outside of that ecosystem. And so the idea of losing access to global neutral information, unbiased information, to them is completely foreign. So this is why we're doing this, basically. And this is why, you know, like um, a, a few of us like who started early enough are, are, are fine, like are comfortable enough now to not have to worry about ourselves. And this is why we're doing this, this crazy stuff. Now, it might occasionally devolve into expensive images of monkeys. Um, but, uh, but, but by and large, even that serves to upgrade the technology, upgrade the ecosystem, increase the technology for everybody's access. Like for example, yesterday a new NFT project launched and in the craze to get their hands on these images, again just images, um, the community pumped the cost of using the Ethereum network to something like a few hundred dollars to send even a few cents. And obviously this is unusable, mm. but this problem is very real and very noticeable now to the point where truly um, creative solutions to these scaling problems are coming up. Mm. And because we were having fun with digital images of monkeys, we are getting better technology that will improve the entire ecosystem and have and have it become more accessible to everybody in the world so it's all good yeah no i see what you're saying it's establishing the flaws and then uh giving you time to work on it when it's not necessarily urgent you know yeah, exactly um are you uh, aware of any entities let's go for a vague word that are trying to undermine the decentralized blockchain community for fear of a genuine uh, decentralized digital community-owned commons? Yes, of course. Um, I'm on the board of a local organization here in Croatia um, called Ubik. It's like, it translates literally to Organization for Blockchain and Cryptocurrency. We focus on trying to educate um, civilians, uh, banks, and government about 
not being afraid of blockchain. And um, through that, we get exposed to a lot of this, this fear, especially coming from the, from the banks where they are um, really scrambling to, you know, like make people panic about blockchain and stay away from it. Um, this is just a minor case though. Like all of Croatia has fewer citizens than a quarter of New York. Mm -hmm. So that's not, not really something that, that matters a lot in the global scale. But um, one, of the, one of the fiercest anti-technological movements is actually coming from the US where the resistance is so strong that the, I don't think the US has ever exercised its, its illusion of being the world police more than they have with crypto. No, um, it's like, like they're kind of acting like every crypto project has a ton of, ton of oil or something. Mm. Um, they like to invade really, really frequently. Um, they like to, to issue warnings, they like to issue takedown notices, they like to, to find projects. Nobody's been in jail yet, but they do, uh, like, they do like the smell of money, where if they, if they smell something that they could kind of under some rules classify as a security according to their, their idea of it, wherever in the world it happened, they will come for the organizers and take like something like 10% um, of the entire raise. They'll let the project alone, they'll leave the project alone so they can milk them later, but they, they will take 10% of the initial raise um, very happily. And so this is why, for example, in crypto, whenever you're doing something with money, you have to try really, really hard to exclude Americans. Um, do IP blocks, do, do KYC, that will just ban them. Um, just, just keep Americans away. Because if they smell even one American got access to it, they're coming for you. Oh, wow. Yeah, but there's also the, like banks, banks are against this. And so this is why um, you will hear a lot of these efforts being put forth from the European Union or, or the US government and so on to, to research blockchain um, and, and similar solutions. But what they're actually researching is, is what we call mock chains, where you actually kind of you take the technology behind the blockchain, but then you run it on a few servers in the government's basement where it's not a decentralized ledger at all. It's just like, you know, a, a fake blockchain that they can say they're using the blockchain, uh, but it's still all under their control. Um, and there's a lot of these, these uh, attempts being, being tried out um, where these like closed nature blockchains are being experimented on. Um, but yeah, a lot, a lot, a lot of anti-blockchain sentiment coming from, from big entities. Mm, that's interesting because people tend to think of the West as like the, the harbinger of freedom. <laughs> you're yeah you're you're only uh, only like everybody's free there only some are more free than others mm. um and this this freedom is diminishing rapidly yeah it, we're freedom fluid <laughs> <laughs> exactly okay but that's interesting because i think so many people when they would imagine I don't know, the superpower that's quite anti-web or anti-digital uh, freedom, China would be the first country that would come to mind. Uh, China is very, like, um, in this case, China is not trying to overreach. So China is policing its own, uh, like, corner of the world. And they do it relatively well. But they're not trying to, you know, ruin everybody else's day. Um, America is. And China, like China has this, uh, 
there's there are specific rules with China that you have to follow and you're good you're, you're fine so like if you do, if you go to China with a blockchain project okay. and you don't uh, try to sell or even mention a token they're good with it so they're good with the tech they like the tech they're experimenting with the tech they're building on on different things nothing really truly decentralized so they want to stop they want to stop it at the Chinese firewall mm -hmm. but they're playing with it, they're allowing it, as long as you don't try to sell a token. They really do not like tokens, they really do not like speculation and securities in general. Mm -hmm. And so they want their people to stay away from that, um, for whatever reason. And if you follow those rules, you're good. And in the US, you're never good. You, you, you cannot run a good uh, crypto business in the US without, without like a few rooms of, of lobbying lawyers and, and whatever else. Um, U.S. is really draconian here, and it's like unprecedentedly so. Just um, the biggest, the biggest crypto company in the world is Coinbase, and they launched their IPO last year, I think, mm -hmm. um, and to to a huge valuation, and you know, like it was all greenlit by the SEC and so on. And in DeFi and this decentralized finance movement in the blockchain that we have, it is very common to be able to earn interest on your capital. Um, because people will borrow money from you on the blockchain so that it's secure, you can't lose it, they can't run off with it. Mm. Um, and then they will use it for whatever else, but they will also pay you interest for it. And so th th there's these protocols that work together and that, that allow you to earn some really nice interest compared to negative rates today in the real world. On the mm. blockchain, you can earn 30% per year safely. Wow. Um, and so... Coinbase wanted to offer its users 4% per year, a conservative 4% per year, very, very safe. And yet the SEC not only rejected this, they said that they would sue them if they tried to pull this through um, without giving any reason or justification or explanation or even tips on how to avoid trouble. They just said, don't, we'll sue you. That's it. And this was this was posted on Twitter just today by, by the CEO, Brian Armstrong, um, who, who was, you know, like, at a loss of options on how to reach them or how to get more information. So this is the biggest crypto company in the world, one of the biggest companies in the US, just getting completely wrecked by the SEC and their decisions that you know are completely unjustified. So if they're willing to do this to one of their top earners, um, that's you know weird. It's it's so vile because. You know, Zuckerberg can pitch um, an Instagram for kids, essentially trying to get children hooked to what? Did he do that? Mental. Uh, he's la he's launching it. What's it called? I don't know yet. It's but it's like it's in. You know, they're developing it now. Christ, I'm gonna have to poke my child's eyes out or something. Yeah, 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 yeah. It's mental. It's um, it's it's all gonna be oh, it's different, and they're gonna be protected, and there'll be like a parental login, and you'll be able to see. But it's it's just trying to get them hooked. Or it's just, just trying to expand his customer base and get them uh, loyal uh, quicker, more loyal quicker. Um, and it's just vile that like when you think of a free market and you think of all the things that can happen yeah. um, and you would say, yeah, okay, in a free market, sure, um, you know, evil Zuckerberg can do what you want because th that's, you know, that's the game that you're in. That's the rules. There are no rules. But Coinbase isn't allowed to offer people 4% on lending like civilian to civilian money. Yep. What the fuck is that about? <laughs> yeah. And it's not it's not even it's not even peer-to-peer -peer lending to other civilians. It's you're lending it to the protocol 
which is okay. uh, cryptographically secure to keep that money safe. And um, people are then borrowing from that protocol. So it's proxied through a smart contract that will keep everything safe and under control. So it's not even like there's not even a counterparty risk in terms of somebody's going to run off with the money. Um, all those loans are actually over collateralized. So if I want to borrow 100 bucks, I have to deposit 150 bucks worth of cryptocurrency into the protocol to borrow 100 bucks of stable currency. And that, like people do this because they need exposure to stable currency right now to pay salaries or whatever, mm -hmm. but they don't want to lose their exposure to the cryptocurrency because they, they anticipate it's going to go up. Um, and so it's, it's, it's always safe. Like even if the borrower runs away with the money, there's more collateral in the program than they lent, than they lent out. And so you can just liquidate that and you get it all back. But no, not even this is allowed. And um, it just makes no sense, right? And exactly, like this is, this is monstrous. Like Instagram for kids is, is a monstrous idea uh, that should be banned at, at, like at its roots. It should be banned right now, but nope. This is, you know, this is, this is uh, and I'm going to flip into journalist mode here. This is a huge story. If um, the uh, American, and I'm not entirely sure I, I understand yet, but if the American, let's say, government state, that's the word, if the American state is trying to track down these projects and block them, um, and even if Europe is investigating mock chains in order to, what, essentially seduce people into using yes. a technology? Not just seduce, but also to, there, there's a lot of talk about, like, I mean, it's undeniable that using a blockchain will save you a lot of money mm. purely because you can fire a lot of people. So everybody who's sitting behind a counter and whose job it is to, uh, you know, uh, smash a stamp on your paper once a day and play solitaire the rest of the day, all those people are gone. Mm. Um, most tax people are gone because all financial records in the blockchain are public and you can easily track transactions automatically with software. Yeah. So a lot of people get fired with blockchains, even mock chains. Like if this data is stored properly and exposed properly to, to programs. Um, a lot of people can be let go. Uh, a lot of systems become faster, simpler, easier to use, much cheaper. Uh, international wire transfers are no longer wire transfers that have to last for six to seven days uh, before they arrive because somebody is physically carrying bags of money from one bank to the other. Um, instead, you, you do these remittances through the chain where um, so mock chains are, are very useful for cartels and banks are the perfect cartel, like airlines and banks are the picture perfect cartel for these operations. Because for example, airlines have to collude to keep prices high, yeah. but they really don't like each other and don't want to work together. Yeah. And if, if you get them on a mock chain, then you have a system where none of them are in charge, but they are collectively in charge and they keep each other in check through this system. But they also share data among each other. And so with this, you allow them to abuse the end user indefinitely while keeping each other in check and working together even though they don't trust each other. So this, this is technology that's ideal for them and it's just a matter of time before they transition to it. For governments and for banks especially, this is, this is also true, banks also don't like each other and have a hard time working together. And this is why wire transfers and so on take so long. And this is why, you know, like the SEPA region when, when it was opened, like the, the, uh, mm -hmm. the European bank region, this is why it did so well and why it had this, this large adoption because you can essentially have this instant SEPA payment where you pay like even outside of working hours and the payment will be remitted to the other bank 
almost in real time. And this is because they're all connected to the same computer system. Um, a mock chain that just connects banks is essentially SEPA on a global scale. So you could essentially have true fiat transfers in a second anywhere in the world. So if banks do adopt that, that actually does pose some kind of a threat to the public blockchain, which is currently used because the banks are so slow and expensive. And so there are, there, there are merits to this if used properly, and they do have some weapons that they can use properly here. Um, but, but by and large, this is still driven by fear, and these, they're, they're still like behaving like cornered animals, issuing warnings and trying to scare people out of, out, out of all this. Um, so it's, you know, it's like that, that old adage, like how, how does it go? Like first they, first they mock you, then they fear you, then they fight you, and then they adopt you or something like that, then right? Then you win. Yeah, then you win. So that's it. Uh, like we're in the fighting stage right now. Good God, you know, you just, you just don't hear about this going on behind the scenes. Like, I'm not seeing this written about anywhere. Well, the Coinbase story you'll probably read about in a day or two, because yeah, it, yeah, yeah. it just broke. It has a few yeah. thousand retweets and, and whatnot, but nobody's been able to write it up yet. So you can expect it, I think, by tonight or something. Yeah. But just in general, like, there's, um, I mean, The Economist is a publication that's quite big on tracking crypto and trying to guess which government will do what and blah, 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 blah. Um, but... I don't even hear so much of a whisper about this um, militaristic resistance to this community-owned technology. Yeah, I guess you're lucky in that, in that regard. The central bank in Croatia here just recently issued a warning against cryptocurrencies um, unprompted, and it happened at the same time as, the, um, as I think Europe also issued something. So it's, it's very coordinated in a way, but you have to be exposed to, to, some, to some kind of, um, you know, like these alternative financial methods to hear about it. Because if you're not in that universe, then you just don't get exposed to it. And it's, you know, no, nobody really, really cares. Right now, it only, this only affects the, the builders mm. um, who, who are constructing these protocols and whatnot, but none of them are at the popularity level that you would expect from a mainstream audience. So none of it reaches a mainstream audience. What, what do you need from the public um, in order to keep these projects going? Do you need uh, more adoption? Uh, do you need people to, you know, try to educate themselves, which is a really big ask, generally speaking? Um, you need, what you need is uh, financial hygiene, basic financial hygiene. So uh, right now there's a, there's a big lack of understanding of how money works in general. And... If people were to inquire a little bit about mm -hmm. the, the inner workings of it all, they would like passively be exposed to alter alternatives already. And then just, um, I think curiosity would take over in a lot of the cases, and they would learn about these things um, just through sheer interest. Um, because when you, when you look at the inflation, when you start looking at the graphs and charts from 1960s until today, patterns emerge that, that start to worry you, and you, you start you know, looking for alternatives. And like one of the, like um, one example is also this, this whole rent seeking on art uh, problem where because of COVID and actors basically being out of work and having to, you know, collab on any movie that's thrown their way. And this is why you like nine out of 10 movies in the, in the past, I don't know how long, six months or so, 
have a Rotten Tomatoes score of 20%. <laughs> um, because they're, they're, they're cornered in terms of what they have to work with, um, they started to also explore alternatives. And this is why you'll see actually a lot of the actors and a lot of the sports stars and all of them experimenting with NFTs now. And this is why you'll see Ashton Kutcher shilling NFTs and Mila Kunis shilling NFTs. And this is why we'll see Stephen Curry buying a picture of a cartoon ape. Mm. Um, because they're exploring this space, because they're starting to realize that here they have a direct link to their audience. And this is similar with finance in general. When you uh, start understanding that a bank always has at most 10% of everybody's money available, and that this can evaporate just like that when they decide it evaporated, mm. then you start looking for ways to keep your money safe from these evaporations. And so this is why this is why people are you know trying to trying to learn about this when they're when they're exposed to this information. But I think this has to start early. We have we do run some courses as the NGO for like adults to learn about finance. This, where where can people find those? Oh, these are just in person and local here in Croatia. Okay. So this is not not something that will be useful for for external audiences. But we did find that they rarely stick. Um, mm. This is something that you need to expose people to, young. So they need like you should t teach about money in school. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, definitely. But there's a, a long reason, the same reason as to why that never happens. <laughs> yeah. Uh, one last example of what NFT could be. For example, if somebody wanted to sell their home, their physical, their house, yep. um, could they sell the deed as an NFT? Um, in theory. Uh, okay. And in practice, it is. it depends on the jurisdiction. So uh, we did some experiments here locally where you actually um, pre-arrange this with a notary. And this is purely because you still need the government to recognize land deeds. Mm. Um, one day when we will have all of this recognized on a blockchain then everything's going to be better for everybody but right now you still need the government to recognize ownership and for that you need notaries wow. and the like this is this is purely because uh, a person as a person does not exist in the eyes of the government um, except as their signature as vouched by somebody else mm. um, and in this case that's a notary it, like to the government, it's completely irrelevant that you can prove ownership much better with a cryptographic signature like a crypto wallet. They just value the, the signatures. And what you do then in that case is you arrange with a notary that you already pre-transfer a deed to whoever arrives at that location with that NFT and burns it. So there's a function that you can you can destroy NFTs basically, and if you cryptographically verify that you have destroyed an NFT in the presence of that notary, then the ownership will automatically transfer to you. So this That's is possible. Yeah. Mm. You are really coming for the establishment, eh? <laughs> well, that's the hope, yeah. <laughs> Good for you. <laughs> right, uh, Bruno. Let's let's end it there because you've certainly given me enough to think about um, and mull over. Thank you very much for your time. Um, who would you like to platform? And I don't know if I asked you to prepare this. It's essentially somebody else that I can get on the show to that you would recommend and to continue the conversation type thing. Um, well, if you can, try and get Brian Armstrong of Coinbase up so he can tell you about this, this SEC fight. Oh, believe you me, that is the first thing I'm going to be doing when we log <laughs> off of this conversation. <laughs> Brian! Um, there you go. This, 
Is there somebody that you you know um, in a, the same field or in a similar field that I could also speak to? It is um, no, I've, I've I've had very limited contacts with him, or maybe on some conferences and something. Nothing nothing major that I could make a directly direct connection with. Um, but you know what? I'm gonna I'm gonna send you a list of candidates as alternatives. Um, and and you can you can reach out to them one by one see what happens Perfect. thank you very much thank you so much for your time today and for such a mind-bending uh, conversation you've given me a lot to think about thank you it's been a pleasure hello everyone me again i am sure that your mind is reeling in the way that my my mind is after that conversation uh, bruno has given us much food for thought uh, and much i don't know about you much fear <laughs> for me I will put links over on platformenterprise.com in this uh, episode page where you can find more uh, about Bruno's projects and how to participate in them if you're that way minded, i.e. techie. While you're there, you can sign up to Platform Enterprise, you can sign up to the mailing list and the best way to support this podcast would be a paid subscription which facilitates me spending this time, you know, getting these amazing people on the show, asking them to <laughs> very... <laughs> plainly and uh, slowly explain these incredible concepts and try to, you know, essentially demystify some of the solutions that all of these amazing people are working on. So I would really appreciate it if you did that. Thank you very much for your support, for the people that are signed up and for the people that tune in every week. And I'll see you next time. Thank you.